welcome to Peer Solutions Tip Family Podcast, Trauma-Informed Primary Prevention. My name is Jennifer Rawhouse. I founded Peer Solutions with the community in 1996 in Phoenix, Arizona. Our vision is a world where everyone is safe and treated equitably with respect. This is a world free from harms to self-others and the planet. This is also a world free from harms in childhood, which is what this is all about, this podcast. We are, again, lucky to have Ia Afo with us. She is the founder of Healing Historical Trauma and will continue the conversation with us. want to send a shout out again to Arizona Child Abuse Prevention License Plate Program for funding this program through the governor's office. Get your plates today. And let's get started. Now that we know, we know about ACEs, we know their impact, we know the historical trauma, we know the epigenetics and the stress and what we can do about it, but you alluded to something earlier and I want to just go into it as much as you can about looking at dressing all this with a culturally specific lens and learning from other cultures and learning what works when you talk about that egalitarian family and native culture and I remember when I first looked at the circle and how everything fits together and everybody gets an equal voice and so many things that we're not doing that were just wiped out and destroyed where we go back to cultural identity and really this this uh when we talk about solutions Mm -hmm. i think these well i know I know doing this work with every fiber of my being, this is where the solutions are. This is how we go back to creating healthy families, but culturally specific within your own world and loving that and appreciating that, like like we talked about. So it's so critical to healing and prevention. So what do you have to say about parenting and culturally specific and what have you seen work and not work and, and how do you take all this yuck that we've talked about and turn it into creating this world where equity really is normalized and but that these kids survive and thrive one of the greatest joys of my life that i think has really contributed to who i am as a human being is having experienced a lot of different cultures and having the opportunity to look at how cultures function and i think in dominant culture we believe that we know everything, you know, dominant culture believes in Western culture. And, you know, there's so many names for this, right? We'll say white supremacy culture. And even when we say that, it sounds very aggressive. You know, it sounds mm-hmm. like we're talking about the KKK or something <laughs> that, you know, right. is aggressive, but we're really not. It's a way that um, two people that have done a lot of work in this area, Tama Okun and Kenneth Jones, mm-hmm. and they have dismantling racism and they've done a lot of work in this area. They label the behaviors and the way our culture operates, specifically in the United States, but really um, in many places around the world with the idea that the white culture and um, the Christian lens is what's right and anything other than that is not right we have to really take a step back from that and see that a lot of things that we have adapted in western culture and in a capitalistic society is not about really caring for the human being 
It's really about what's most convenient. A lot of these practices have to do with, I need money, I need convenience. The faster I can get you in my classroom and out of my classroom, uh, the more convenient it is for me, the faster I can move on to the next thing. If you're sick and I can give you a pill, I can generate a lot of money <laughs> if I'm just treating your symptoms yeah. because then I can spend a lifetime chasing all your symptoms, causing new symptoms in new areas and keep having you take medication and I keep generating money. So everything has been about how can I be convenient and how can I generate money because time is money and at the, the bottom of all of this, I need money. So we've got to really look at some of the ways of, um, you know, traditional ways of being in order to heal. And I, and when I talk about this, I'm not talking about just heal black indigenous people of color, but oh, no. I'm saying heal, you know, across the board. Mm -hmm. For example, I, I work out uh, in one of the Native American communities and at one time I had a kid come that I worked with all the time and he was so proud because he used to save allowance money a lot, right? So he'd tell me every week how much money he had saved. One week he came in and he said, all my money is gone, Miss Edith. And I said, oh no, you know what, you know, did you spend it? Did you buy some, you know, like what happened to your money? And so he says, well, no, the lights went off in my house. I had to use my money to turn the lights back on. He looked at me waiting for me to, you know, really sympathize with him and, and feel sorry for him. But really in that moment, what I saw was, you know, I could say, oh, wow, you know, that boy, I bet that felt, you know, bad. Like, what did you want to do with your money? So he would tell me, you know, he wanted to buy a video, a new video game and he wanted to buy some mm -hmm. sneakers. And I said, yeah, but how long really are you going to be excited about that video game? How long is it going to be before those sneakers are dirtier, before they don't fit? But how long will everybody remember the time when you were 10 or 11 and the lights went out and mom and dad didn't have any money and you took your money and you turned the lights back on for the family and mm -hmm. how empowering is that for you to have been able to do that for your family dominant culture would say that that poor boy and it's wrong that he had to pay for his family to have electricity and that's the responsibility of the parent and the parent should have done that and on and on if we paint the perfect picture i suppose yes um it's wonderful if the parent can pay for things and do things on the flip side of that, we just taught a young man that will potentially one day be a husband and father what it means to contribute to the community that's inside our home and what it means to take responsibility for our loved ones and for a family. That's one of those things. In my family, because we are very connected to Africa and we still have our family members and, and so forth in Africa. If somebody is sick, everybody has to contribute, you know, from the smallest up, everybody puts their money together and contributes. Well, there's a great sense of pride when 
the smallest of the group has $2 that they earned from, you know, whatever it is they did. And they take their $2 and they put it into the pot. There's a sense of responsibility for their community. Pride that I contributed to something good. If we always make the conditions easy and pleasant and we don't groom the children from when they're young to take responsibility for their community and to care and that everybody is supposed to have what they need, then where do we go? And who are we? Right. I mean, where's the humanity? And that's why I'm saying the dominant culture, it yeah. hasn't worked. Greed doesn't work. The things our children are going through today with the COVID lens yes. and even without it. Mm -hmm. But you had the COVID lens. I'm terrified. I've never in my life, and I've been working in this field, you know, 38 years, and I have never been more afraid for our kids today than mm -hmm. ever. And that is because of greed. And I'm telling you what, that goes to tell you right there, dominant culture doesn't work. So what does? Yeah. When we look at this, you know, caring, sorry, just yeah. caring, cutting you off again, no, okay. by caring about families. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do agree with yeah. you. Yeah. And myself. so, yes. And so when, when I talk about um, egal being egalitarian, yeah. you know, it's the idea that everybody is as important as the next person. So it's the idea that even as I raised my older sons and we lived in California and, you know, neighborhoods in California can get messy, you know, like um, group different groups intersect. And so you have the ability to have um, some families that are really struggling in the same neighborhood as families that are doing a little bit better and so forth and so on. And I can remember people questioning why I would allow my son to hang out and play with certain kids. But in an egalitarian mindset, I very clearly understand that what impacts the child down the street impacts my child. So that what makes my child more important than that child just because I birthed it, you know, that's not the mindset, you know, in many villages, you know, back home, <laughs> kids sometimes don't know who the actual person is that birthed them because right. so many people have cared for them. So many people have nursed that's them awesome. from their breasts that they're not sure which one is the one, you know, right. that, um, that gave birth. I mean, that's literal, you know, that, I mean, literally. So if, um, you know, wh why would my kid be more important? And the smartest way for me to go is to pull that child in and feed that child, you know, physically and metaphorically feed them. And that's the best outcome. If I only even wanted to look at my kid, that's how to create really the best outcome. Because if I impact the mindset of the children around him, that's going to impact my own. So that's kind of the idea of being egalitarian, that everybody is important and everybody is supposed to get what they need at that particular time. And then you model that for the kids yes. because 90% of behavior is learned through modeling. Right. So tell me about how that works. I, Whenever I travel back home, I have to always have a duffel bag 
filled with candy because I like to be able to give children a piece of candy. But if you are in Africa and I see one kid walking with its mother and I offer a piece of candy, that child is going to, before they even open and eat that candy, going to run back to the village and get all the kids and say, you know, there is a, they would call me Yovo, like a foreigner, mean? white lady, oh. foreigner, even though I'm black, uh, you know, that has candy, you know, and you better come and get some. A hundred kids will show up and right. each one will expect their piece of candy and they'll wait and they'll all eat that piece of candy together. together. Even outside of the children, I, I show up with rice, you know, so it might be a hundred pound bag of rice or, you know, depending on how big, maybe we've brought two or 300 pounds of rice, but every family has the right to receive that same cup of rice. So everybody is going to line up and everybody's going to have a cup and everybody is expected to receive, you know, their cup of rice because that's what it means to be egalitarian. Those kids won't enjoy that piece of candy unless all the kids are enjoying the piece of candy with them. Can and you imagine? <laughs> I know. Well, yes. I mean, and yeah. <laughs> yeah you, right, you know, but it, it, so there's not this thing about, um, I'm more important than you or I want four pieces of candy. Um, you know, you get one piece, but I get four pieces and everywhere we go from the dominant culture lens. And I'm not just saying white people because all of us are impacted by it, you know, unless we're tribal or unless we're still very connected to tribal ways of being, because maybe we live in one of the native American communities and we're still very much connected to that. We are always perpetuating this idea of I might be more important than you or I get more than what you get. Uh, I, I saw this. I, it was so upsetting. I work in behavioral health. Again, I was out in one of the communities. We had taken the kids to see like maybe, I think it was like Disney on Ice, something like that. Buying the kids food from those events are very expensive. So typically we didn't, you know, we don't buy any food. But there was one little girl. We were standing at a um, a pizza a stall, like a, you know, a thing that sell, sells pizza and it was kind of the end of the night. And she says, I want one of those pizzas. And the person that was working there gave it to her because they knew, you know, it's the end of the night. You're just going to throw it away. And here's mm-hmm. this little girl. Mm-hmm. So she gives her the pizza. Another staff member that was more um, grounded in dominant culture we go back and all the kids are, are sitting around and my colleague says, well, um, we were lucky, little so-and-so got us this pizza. I'm going to cut these slices in half and everybody's going to get half a slice and then she gets the rest because it's her pizza. She was the one that asked for it. First of all, we're working in a Native American community and we want to model a traditional egalitarian community, right? Because we're trying to impact the community in a positive way. <laughs> and you just taught this little girl that instead of going with traditional way of being, you're here among oh, nine dear. other mm-hmm. of your peers, similar in age. And because you were the person that asked for it, I'm teaching you mm-hmm. that you don't share equally with everyone this way of being like we have to look at 
other cultures and understand like sometimes they get it right you know sometimes everybody you know gets it right do they do something better than what you do or you have to learn mm -hmm. um another example that i talk about we had a, when we do intake new clients are coming in you know a group sits down and staffs the new child coming in to do like treatment plans and decide what particular needs the child has the clinician had gone out to do the intake and the boy was very tired. He was a 12-year-old boy he was, and he kept saying, you know, he was so tired because his mom had been sick and he had been up all night taking care of his mom. The clinician came in saying, this poor boy, you know, he was so tired, he was falling asleep. The poor little guy is parentified, so we need to work that into, you know, the diagnosis and the treatment plan and so forth and so on and explained why. You know, from the dominant culture lens, we look at this 12-year-old who is caring for his mom, who's a single mom, who has been his main caretaker for all of his life, who he has always been dependent on to take care of him, and he's 12, and mom is sick, so he looks after mom for the night, and we say, the poor guy is parentified. But in black, indigenous, people of color communities, we groom our children to respect elders. And we especially groom our children that mom is at the top of the list, you know, that mom is number one. And so a male child that's 12 and has the opportunity to take care of mom has a great sense of pride. Mm -hmm. He's proud. He wants to tell everybody that he took, he care, took of care of mom. mom. He brought mom water. He covered mom was cold. He put a blanket on her. You know, he did all these things. So there's this great sense of pride. So we can't take the pride away from the kid. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, a little boy should have to cook <laughs> for his mom. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, like cook for mom every day and do all these things. Also, the older children are groomed to take care of the younger children. Again, I'm not saying that the six-year-old, <laughs> you know, is the parent of the two-year-old uh, right, two or right. the infant. But, you know, like... Everybody my, has an equal opportunity, responsibility. Everybody has, right, everybody has a role. You have to groom the child from a young age to care about elders, to take care of mom to respect and know that your community is your responsibility. I'll hear someone say, um, well, do you pay your son to babysit? Do I pay the oldest boy <laughs> to do his birthright, which is to watch the younger brother sometimes? Absolutely no. not. You know, I mean, again, he's not his responsibility 24 hours a day. I'm not suggesting that, but for that matter, do the kids at my house get paid to do a chore, like to mop the floor? Absolutely not. <laughs> this is your floor. You know, you live here. Everybody right. has part of, right. you know, a responsibility within right. the community. We have to go back to some of those practices. And when we live in a community that says you need to pay your kid to babysit the other kid, or you need to pay your kid, you know, to mop the floor. And when we, you know, keep having these rules and going by these rules, we change the dynamic 
within the family. And the family is where you learn how to behave out in the world. So then we wonder why uh, we can't control litter. We wonder why people see a girl they've never been required to be responsible for anybody they've never had to think about anybody else they've never had to take responsibility for anybody else and it's very easy to say that's not my problem right but the truth is family Mm -hmm. makes the world go around and if you get to that core and you teach that then that's what permeates and pays forward and that's how norms are made we have the highest rate in the country of kids thinking about planning um, their own suicides. Yeah. And Latinx kids have the highest percentage, even of Native Americans, of thinking about and planning their own suicides. Yes. Of course, Native American kids have this mm-hmm. highest rate of suicide. Yes. And we know why. Mm-hmm. It's all the reasons that we talked about. And these are their family members and these, these, these family members that are having to deal with this generational trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking dominant culture, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we got our issues, but this is legit, and it is life and death. Yeah. And if we could really get to this, not shame, not judgment. Yeah. This is where we're at. We understand this. Yeah. Um, if you are a person um, in Canada and you seek out behavioral health services, They'll ask you if you are um, Aboriginal and if you believe that culture will help with your treatment. And Mm -hmm. if you're willing, you go on this path that is um, culturally appropriate for you as an Aboriginal person. So that means that you have traditional Western services but it's all interwoven with um, cleansings and um, naming ceremonies and talking circle and um, sweat lodge. So even in the middle of urban Toronto, right, where you have all the buildings and what have you, on the roof of one of the buildings where we were, there was a sweat lodge. So people that lived in the inner city had the opportunity to utilize sweat lodge as part of their healing because they couldn't go out to the more remote areas. What was very interesting is that we saw how they were working with individuals, but also with families. It was really important that in families that were struggling, that the first step was not separating children from parents and separating children from families. The first the, the step really was, how do we start to get the family unit well so that the children can be safe with their family members? And so some of that involved like respite work so that the kids could be removed for periods of time and work on some of the behavioral stuff while the parents also get a break and have the opportunity to work on some of their behavioral stuff. And at the same time, incorporate all of the traditional ways. Culturally specific healing. Yes, very culturally specific healing. Because of course we have to be mitigating the damage of the historical trauma. Because we know it's there. So we have to look again at family because that's part of the resilience. This isn't the first time in history that we have had trauma or that 
Um, we've had adversity. We've always had adversity. There's always been, in everybody's culture, some level of adversity. There's been some level of trauma. When we start to talk about this stuff, some people say, like, we got over trauma. Why is everybody still crying about this? Or back in the day, we had to get through whatever the last pandemic was. And But the reason it's such an issue right now is because we have lost our tools to be resilient. We used to have tools to be resilient. Family was one of the ways that we have been able to be resilient. Yeah. And if the family structure is destroyed, whether that's in the dominant culture or, right. you know, the black indigenous people of color culture, when the family gets destroyed, it's very hard to have that resilience. It's very hard to overcome the traumas that you face. As I understand, you might have a little piece of homework for people that might be listening that might be able to take this with them and maybe learn some things and bring this into their own world and help them feel better about parenting and what they're doing. I think one of the um, very, very powerful things to do, and um, it was an exercise that we talked about some time ago for pregnant women and to protect the next generation from harm. And so some of this was at home services for women from the time they know that they are pregnant and go um, the first 1,000 days of cool. the child's life, right? And in doing this, it was, let's look at your family background, your family history. Because especially for a woman that's about to give birth, right? Like well, we know that when we're in, you know, certain phases in our life, we're more open to things than at other times. So this was extremely powerful then. But even for people that are listening right now, as we're in the middle of this COVID crisis, as we're watching our kids have, you know, aberrant or defiant <laughs> behavior, meltdowns, you know, all the stuff. <laughs> you look at what is my family history? What abuse or what uncomfortable situations or what situations that I feel or, you know, impacted me in a negative fashion? Let me take a look at that. So what was my upbringing like and what was positive about it and what was painful about it? And what were the stories that I potentially heard about um, this particular aunt or this particular grandmother or, um, you know, different people in life? Do I, and even with the idea that my parent really loved me and my parent had the best intention, but this particular thing was especially damaging for me. I think it's a very powerful exercise. It's something I've, I've done in my own life to take a look and go back at some of those things and create almost, um, a, almost like a family tree of benevolent experiences and 
harmful or neglectful, hurtful experiences. And I think when we can look at that, for one, we see in ourselves some behaviors that we might want to change. Like we see, you know. <laughs> oh, my mom did that. Right. <laughs> I don't need you to know? be a murderer. <laughs> right. You know, when you look at like, you know, the person that you don't want to be like right. ever in life right. and you find yourself being like that person, right. it may have snuck up on you, you know. And until you do this exercise, you may not realize that there's some things that you need to change about yourself. Um, or, you know, there's things that you might want to incorporate into your own parenting. And so it's a wonderful time to construct your family tree of harm, abuse, neglect, and uh, benevolent positive experiences and start to analyze some of those things. Take note of some of the things that we see as history in our family. Wow, that happened to me. I've been doing that to, you know, my kid. I think, you know, and my mother, it happened there. And I can see where it happened to my grandparent. And you will start to see um, some commonalities that's created a certain culture within your family structure. And that's what we want to do. We want to look at what culture is in the family? What are we creating in that family structure? Because when we look at what we create inside the home and inside the family structure, we're going to then be able to impact the human beings that we birth and the human being that we parent. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we see often, um, parents seeing behaviors, right, from their children and saying, I didn't raise them to be that way. And you don't realize that um, some of the things that you did in the home, while you didn't um, say, I want you to be this kind of person, but some of your behaviors in the home, some of the cultures in the home have created those behaviors. Um, I remember my oldest son was about 10. He had a friend, we, we lived in um, California and he went to a private school with very famous people's children and people who had a lot of money. He went over to one of his friend's houses and you know, they could like skateboard inside the house, you know, yeah. big, big house, <laughs> skateboard down the hall and you know, uh -huh. all this stuff. But at lunchtime, uh, if, the boy didn't want to eat his food. The, my son's friend would throw the food on the floor. And so he told my son, don't worry. If you don't like the lunch and you don't want to eat it, just throw it over your shoulder because we have, you know, their um, housekeeper that would go and pick it up. The housekeeper was a woman of color. If we have a culture inside the home that says like, it's okay if I throw my food on the floor when I don't want to eat it. And we have these very famous and influential parents that go out in the world and say, um, you know, I'm not racist and I support, you know, all of these wonderful Optics, things. Optics. Yes. Optics. 
and then you see your child you know have this you know potentially racist behavior and you go but i didn't teach them to be racist i never you know <laughs> used the n-word in my uh -huh. home or right. i never talked down on people well no you didn't but what you did do is your kid threw that sandwich on the floor knowing that this person of color who worked in your home was going to be the person to pick that food up so what you taught that child by having that is you don't have to respect people of color. People of color are there to serve you. Period. You get to disrespect, right. You get to disrespect people of color. So you can say that, no, maybe you didn't use any derogatory language toward people of color in your home. And maybe, you know, you gave your housekeeper all of these wonderful things and you paid them well and blah, 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 blah. And you did all this, this wonderful stuff. Anything. It means nothing because you groomed that child mm -hmm. to not respect people of color and that people of color are there to serve them. So, you know, that's kind of an extreme example, but it's that type of thing. And even, you know, that parent, I'm not even saying like, what a terrible person you are. The parent didn't get it. You know what I mean? Like they didn't get that. That's what they were grooming right. and ignoring that or thinking that's just spoiled brat behavior. It went beyond spoiled brat behavior. It gave this message of, what a person of color is to me. If we look at what culture we're creating in the home, we're going to have you a bet. very clear idea of the human beings that we are going to groom and raise. So we've got to start that by self-reflection and being able to be honest with ourselves about what's in my past and what worked, what didn't work, and who am I and how many of these behaviors do I have? And what culture do I want to have in the home? Who am I trying to create? And what culture do I need to have within my home to create that? We can't expect our child to take care of us when we're 90 and not throw us away in the nursing home if we haven't created a culture in the home of taking responsibility for the home itself and for the rest of the people in our home again because the home is where we learn who and how to be out in society. Exactly, and learning from other cultures, which we're gonna get to do, I think, throughout this podcast. Again, I'm gonna go back to, is the solution? And I, I love this, and I think we really did talk about ACEs and its impact on families, and also what we can do about it. In conclusion, I want to highlight a resource for anyone listening that I feel is great. There's, It's called Child Help, and they have a 24-hour hotline. They have a million different languages, and everyone that answers the phone is a licensed therapist. They understand, they understand historical, tra historical trauma. You can call them at any time, whether you had something happen to you when you were two, or if you're working with someone and you want to help them, or as a parent, you're like, I wonder how I should do X, Y, and Z. You can talk to them about anything. Also, dealing with your own trauma. I would suggest 1-800-4-A-CHILD. It's 1-800-422-4453. I love child help. They believe um, they believe you, they listen to you, they help you on all fronts. 
Call Child Help if you have any questions or want to talk to anybody privately. Totally confidential. And we'll have more resources on our website for you as well. Ia, I want to thank you for the session today. I think it was amazing. And I'm really excited to take it to the next level and talk more about how we manage our stress hormones. Because we're kind of all got them. And how does that affect parenting? Once again, thank you to the Arizona Child Abuse License Plate Program through the Arizona Governor's Office. Thank you, Ian.